Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what is legislative effectiveness? We voters often say that we want our senators and members of Congress to do things, and preferably the right things. We tend to dislike it when we see people on Capitol Hill who are all talk and no action. And in theory, we should vote out of office those lawmakers who are ineffective. Now, let me have a caveat here. To be sure, there are some legislators who have turned noise-making into a profitable brand, and they do use it to get reelected again and again. But in my 20 years of watching Capitol Hill, it's my estimate that they comprise a small percentage of the total membership. Most people in Congress are, to varying degrees, trying to get things done. So how then are we voters supposed to tell which of these legislators are effective and which, eh, are not? To help me answer that question, I have with me Craig Bolden. He is a professor of public policy and politics at the University of Virginia. Dr. Bolden is the author of many publications, and critically for this podcast's purpose, he is the founder and co-director of the Center for Effective Lawmaking, which produces scores of legislative effectiveness that you can find at thelawmakers.org. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to join you, Kevin. So let's cut straight to the chase, to the topic of the program. What is legislative effectiveness? Well, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time and working with Professor Alan Wiseman at Vanderbilt University. And we wrote a book on the subject about a decade ago called Legislative Effectiveness in the United States Congress, The Lawmakers. And there we define legislative effectiveness as, quote, the proven ability to advance a member's agenda items through the legislative process and into law. So proven ability is in there, the agenda items of the member is in there, and then kind of advancing into law, kind of key, key elements of that phrase. So it really does, as the book title indicate, focus on the law-making function of an elected official. That's right. So, you know, and here Alan and I founded the Center for Effective Lawmaking and and we like to stay in our lane. So it's not the Center for Effective Oversight or Effective Communication with Constituents. It's a, it's about lawmaking and what does it take to, to move those bills into law in, in the Congress and, you know, increasingly now in the state legislatures. So you mentioned there was a book about a decade ago. In my intro of you, I mentioned the website, thelawmakers.org. When did that launch, and what was the motivation behind putting that out there? Right. So indeed, our book came out in 2014, and there was certainly some academic interest, but there was also some broader level of interest among members of Congress, some in the good governance community, some private foundations. And we were blessed enough to get some grant money and to have a conversation about whether we wanted to continue our research on effective lawmaking into the future. And 
you know, if so, did we want it to be a purely academic exercise or, or were we interested in maybe more engagement with Congress and, and with the good governance community? And we're both at career stages after tenure and so on where we can combine those, do research and hopefully make that research of use to others. And so as part of that, we looked into, you know, what would be the best way to make that contribution and uh, decided that setting up the Center for Effective Lawmaking, a partnership between Vanderbilt University and the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, where I am at the University of Virginia, made a lot of sense, along with everything that comes from a, a, a center. So we have, for example, an annual conference and two dozen faculty affiliates at a variety of colleges and universities and think tanks, a working paper series, a public release of our scores, as you said, on the, the lawmakers.org, small grant competition, kind of all of the fun things that on the research end are really helpful to building up a a community of knowledge, but then also on the engagement front, generating, for example, our new member guide and getting involved in orientation materials with our with our good governance partner organizations for new members coming to Capitol Hill or talking with a variety of organizations that are trying to get, you know, people to run for Congress who would be effective once they get there, or institutional reformers who are thinking about you know, how, to, how to make a better Congress. Uh, and so wanting to be grounded in the research, but simultaneously of use to the, to the uh, good governance community and to Congress itself. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, a, a book is a static creation. Unless you release a new edition, uh, you can't update it. You can't insert new data. You can't put uh, information on, you know, new members of Congress. And so a website's got clear, clear traction to it. Websites also, everybody should know, not behind a paywall. Anybody can go take a look at thelawmakers.org. Now, put in basic terms, terms for non-political scientists out there, how do you measure legislative effectiveness. You just count up the number of laws that a member's name is attached to as a sponsor or co-sponsor. What's what's the method? Right. So, you know, we return back to that definition, proven ability to advance a member's agenda through the legislative process and into law. And then, you know, thinking clearly about how would we objectively measure that. And so, you know, prior to our work, there was just the counting up of laws. There was uh, some subjective, let's do a survey and see who, who people think is effective. We were, we were more interested in a holistic measure. And so we actually combined 15 metrics in kind of a weighted average based on the bills that any member sponsors, how far they move through the lawmaking process, and how kind of important they are uh, in a substantive sense. And so uh, we track five stages of the lawmaking process. So for anybody, as you're mentioning, you know, how many bills did they put forward as the main sponsor? But then how many of those bills received action in committee, a hearing, a markup, a subcommittee vote? How many of them received action beyond committee on the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate getting to a vote? How many of them passed their home chamber and how many of them became law? And then we know that not all of these bills are the same. And so we downgrade the commemorative, you know, your post office namings, your minting of coins, and we upgrade uh, the substantive and significant bills, those that get a lot of media attention. And so these five stages of the lawmaking process and three levels of bill significance combined together to these kind of 15 weighted average metrics. And the things that are rarer, having a law, having a substantive and significant law, then has a, a much greater weight on one's legislative effectiveness score. We also are recognizing that more and more 
it's the case that it's not standalone bills that are becoming law. It's uh, these conglomerations of bills and ideas that end up in a law. So the uh, omnibus budget bills or the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, has within it uh, often embedded dozens or hundreds of different pieces of legislation, which we're able to now detect using, we're at universities, using plagiarism-style software, finding the language that's in uh, bills and whether it appears in laws later on, and so we're able to give credit for all of those. The Data available to us is, is pretty great and such that we're able up on our website to give scores for every member of Congress in each Congress from the 1970s right up through the most recently completed 117th Congress. Uh, and we do that in uh, 21 different issue areas as well. So if somebody's saying, you know, who's really getting something done on defense or in education or in healthcare, going to our website and clicking on those issues or the House or the Senate or any state gives you a lot of those details. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. So I've heard your definition, legislative effectiveness, very individualistic definition. That would imply that a legislator has a certain um, extent of authority or power to actually raise their own effectiveness score. Or I guess, yeah, let me put this a different way. Are the most effective legislators inevitably the individuals who lead the House of Representatives and the Senate, the power brokers, the guys who've been in the chairs forever, and they always rack up the high score by virtue of position or not? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, we went into this as we were measuring with an assumption that we would expect that we would detect that a 10th term majority party committee chair would outscore a you know, first term minority party member. And certainly we find that. But then what's most fascinating to us uh, is what members do that uh, is individualistic, what legislators can do from, from day one to become more effective. Uh, and so uh, we've dedicated a lot of our research around that. Let me give a few examples. We've looked at freshman members of Congress and looked at the uh, congressional staff that they hire. How many years of experience on Capitol Hill did those staff members have? And about a quarter of all new members of Congress hire legislative staff who have zero years of, of Capitol Hill experience. Others hire a very experienced staff, and those who hire an experienced staff tend to be much more effective, uh, as you could imagine. We also look at the legislative portfolios that members are putting forward. I mentioned that we scored people on 21 different issue areas. Well, some members of Congress sponsor bills in 21 different issue areas. They're really generalists. Some are much more specialists. They become the go-to person on health or education. And the most effective members kind of find that sweet spot where they dedicate you know, more than half of their agenda to something where they have expertise, maybe from their background career, they have a committee assignment in that area, their constituents care about it, so they're not pulled between, you know, what am I going to do to get reelected and what am I going to do in lawmaking? And so they're really specialists in those key areas. Uh, and a third thing I'd point to as an example is we find that the most effective members of Congress are pretty bipartisan. They attract to their bills members of the other party. That's helpful, certainly, if you're in the minority party. But what we found is that majority party members that build that broad bipartisan coalition are more effective as members of Congress. And that effectiveness has been consistent even in recent years when we know Congress has been quite polarized. Yeah, I would uh, underscore for listeners that the uh, bipartisan angle there is 
important, uh, not least because the margins in the two chambers tend to be very narrow and getting anything through. It's not easy to get your party to be unanimous in support of something. It's always nice if you can get support from across the aisle. And it is inevitably a question that gets asked on Capitol Hill. When staff are shopping around a boss's bill, one of the responses they get from other offices is, somebody in the other party co-sponsoring or supporting this? People want to know whether or not this is going to be a tough effort or an impossible one. Now, these scores you guys are cranking out for legislative effectiveness, how often are you surprised by them? Do you often get scores where you think, wait a minute, I've never heard of this person, and yet this person is scoring high? Or obversely, huh, this person always gets media attention as like a serious policymaker, but in fact, the numbers don't bear it out. Yeah, it's interesting. So there is some up and down by the nature of what actually became law uh, in this particular Congress. But we were partly surprised by the remarkable consistency. Who's at the top of our lists from one Congress to the next has been pretty consistent. But where we're spending much of our effort is not thinking about the individual blips up and down, but some broader patterns that we can discern here. And and the surprises often come to us in those patterns. So let me give an example of, of something that we've found recently and are talking about quite a bit, which is over the past 50 years, when Democrats have been in the majority party, It's the liberal wing of the Democratic Party that has its most effective members. So if we kind of divide each party into its liberal wing, its middle, and its uh, conservative wing, when Democrats have been in the majority, whether in the House or the Senate, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party has been the most effective, according to our scores, at advancing its legislation. When Republicans have been in the majority party, the conservative wing of the Republican Party is actually the least effective in that case. And so what are the parties doing and how are they advancing uh, their legislation and what does that mean for you know, increased polarization or the argument that Republicans have moved in a more, much more conservative direction? And then when we dive in, we can see, well, what's going on there? Uh, why are conservative Republicans having a tough time? And it's linked to a variety of those things that we've been talking about already. So the conservative turn in the Republican Party has been fairly recent, given across our 50-year scale. And so the most conservative members of the Republican Party are not particularly senior. They're not likely to hold committee chairs. And as such, because we know those are key factors in moving legislation forward, the institutions aren't set up to move in those new directions as strongly. Moreover, a lot of those conservative members of Congress aren't doing the work of building coalitions across party lines. And so that lack of bipartisanship is is harming them as well. And nevertheless, the the idea that conservative Republicans aren't finding, even when they're in the majority, Congress very receptive to the bills they're putting forward, helps us explain and kind of understand why that set of individuals has been asking for more power, looking for reforms, questioning whether the speaker is on their side, and so on. Do they have a strong case that their ideas are not moving forward through Congress? Uh, In fact, yes, they do. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, since we're talking about the elected officials, have any of them taken notice of these scores? Maybe dialed you up and complained about the the rating they got or said thank you for, for, for giving them such a high score. And how about media and voters? Are they picking up on the these legislative effectiveness scores? 
So it's interesting. We release the scores at the end of each Congress. So Congresses end in January, and we try to get the scores out there in February. And when we do, we get a lot of press coverage. We get those who are on our top 10 lists, uh, you know, tweeting about it or writing that up or promoting it and so on. And, and that kind of filters through the years of Congress and then finds its way in many cases into election uh, campaigns. High performers tend to use uh, those scores to promote their case. I'm thinking back to the Iowa caucuses four years ago when Amy Klobuchar had a series of T-shirts that she was handing out there saying she was the most effective Democrat in the Senate as she was running for the Democratic nomination. And on the other end, competitors against those who are ineffective tend to use those in campaigns as well. The other way that that members and media take notice is through some of those activities uh, and programming that we tend to do on Capitol Hill with in line with our mission and, and with our partners. So our new member guide is there and the orientation activities that we do for newly elected members of Congress. It's not so much how can I manipulate the system to get a higher score, but how can I actually be a more effective member of Congress? And so that advice about setting up and tailoring one's agenda and building out coalitions and, and all of the rest, I think is, is good advice. It's now well-grounded in research advice and something that at least many members of Congress are paying attention to. That's terrific. That's terrific. Academic research that is bleeding over and affecting reality in a positive fashion. That's great. Well, this is implicit, I guess, in the whole interview, but I'm going to ask it explicitly anyway. There are lots of ways to measure our national legislature, all sorts of stuff political scientists have been studying forever. Why is legislative effectiveness such an important concept and metric? Why is it something that you've been wanting to develop, you know, the research on this and to spend so much of your time on? Yeah, so, I mean, at the Center for Effective Lawmaking, we have a vision statement, as uh, some organizations do, and, and we envision a Congress comprised of effective lawmakers, strong institutional capacity, and the incentive structure needed to address America's greatest public policy challenges. Now, I'm sure your listeners would agree that we're not there yet, uh, maybe nowhere near there yet, but our focus on legislative effectiveness and, and really the work of our two dozen faculty affiliates seems to be offering something of a path forward. And so, you know, I'd love to mention one of our major research endeavors is what we call our Building a Better Congress project. The Building a Better Congress project has three main buckets. The first, what we call identification. What are the traits of people who, if they were to choose to run for Congress, would likely be pretty effective when they're there? And so our research finds, for example, that all else equal women are more effective than men could be used to help the organizations that are trying to get more women to run for Congress. Or our research that suggests that there are certain state legislatures that are working really well as training grounds where members of Congress who come from those legislatures seem to hit the ground running. That tells us something about how our system of federalism works and, and could be promoted. Our second bucket in the Building a Better Congress project is what we refer to as cultivation. Now that somebody is there, what could they do to be more effective as a member of Congress. And so that's about the, you know, hiring experienced staff and specializing and, and engaging in bipartisanship. But also in that cultivation bucket is this idea of institutional reforms. You know, what would happen if we re-strengthened the committee process? 
building some expertise there, getting members to specialize, doing lawmakers in a lawmaking in a different way, or you know, what if we considered some reforms based on what we see in state legislatures now that we're scoring state legislators as well? We find some instances where, you know, both the majority party and minority party are putting forward ideas that are given serious consideration. How could we get there in Congress also? And then our third bucket in uh, building a better Congress project is accountability. What do voters know about how effective their lawmakers are and, and do they really care about that? And our research is suggesting that most voters don't know how effective their lawmakers are. But when we give them that information kind of in a survey experiment setting, uh, they care about it quite, quite intensely. It doesn't replace their partisanship. But if they're on the fence or if they're thinking in a primary election, I'd much rather have somebody who can, can do the job and advance bills on my behalf than somebody who can't. And yet, a lot of voters don't know where to get that information. They hear these campaigns and every member of Congress says they're effective. Every opponent says they're ineffective. But having some objective scoring, we're putting that out there, media are picking up on that, newspaper endorsements are based on that, and so on. So across these three buckets, we think there's lots of opportunities for whether it's recruitment of members of Congress, cultivating the effectiveness of the members of Congress, accountability, and, and the way we tend to think about this is none of the stuff that I just mentioned requires a massive overhaul of our institutions. None of them requires a constitutional amendment. You know, it just involves understanding what it takes to facilitate effective lawmaking in Congress and getting that key information into the right hands at the right points in time. And so I'm pretty optimistic. You know, it's a heavy lift to get to that vision statement. But we see step by step that there are things that can be done in effective lawmaking that would really make a difference. Excellent. Yes. And the um, sort of highlight for listeners, the accountability aspect, we know that elective officials have strong incentives to claim credit. And sometimes when they claim credit, they're doing it honestly and fairly. Other times, perhaps not. And so for a website to be created by outsiders, political scientists that uses objective measures and are able to put together these scores that are not gameable in some easy fashion or anything like that. That's a real service to voters, a real service to those of us who want to know whether legislators are being effective or not. Now, we have time for one last question. Listen to all you've said, it sounds like legislative effectiveness is a choice. You could choose to be a lawmaker and not just a noisemaker. But it's also a skill. Fair? I think that's right. Um, so it's not easy to be an effective lawmaker. It's not easy to make laws uh, through the Congress that we have. It takes a lot of effort. I could see why people don't want to invest the time and necessary cultivation of that skill and would rather turn to something else. Now, some of those something else's are essential to our governance process, those who are engaged in oversight, those who generate uh, new ideas but maybe not put them forward on their own, those who build a coalition behind the scenes, those who are leaders. What we're interested in is, you know, also those who are lawmakers and the most effective ones take it as a passion and they work to become better and better at building those coalitions and getting things done in Congress. All righty. We are out of time, so let me say thank you, Professor Bolden, for coming on the podcast and helping us better understand what is legislative effectiveness. 
Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. And, and the listeners, come to our website, thelawmakers.org. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.